Peace, peace. What is going on, everyone? How are we doing? This is weird, huh? You're not riding around in my car, uh, listening to the terrible background noise. Hopefully, you will only probably hear my loud-ass furnace go off a couple of times, but... Anyways, welcome to the show. This is In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and proletarian revolution. I'm your host, Josh. I use she, her pronouns, and I am happy to be here to talk with you all about a couple important things and uh, hopefully be able to have a meaningful message and call to action here at the end. But anyways, um, so we will be having a little smoke sesh um, that is the vibe we're going for today. I'm home. I had a snow day, so I figured I haven't really put up a solid episode, informational one, that has research and is a little bit more structured. Uh, So I figured now's the time to maybe take advantage of this extra uh, day that I have um, in order to, you know, have a little bit more of a impactful, meaningful episode than just me ranting. I don't know what you folks think about this stuff. You still don't tell me what you think. Hit me up at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram, indefensiveliberation, and you can also find me on Twitter, redstarbitch420. But we got a couple news bits to get off the top here. Uh, So... If this is your first time tuning in, I'm gonna uh, say that this probably won't be like most episodes, you know, hopefully in the future I'll be able to get more episodes out like this, but, um, so what I plan to do is bang through some news and then shift over to a a general topic. We're gonna talk about the censorship of black power media and the continued uh, censorship of the progressive and revolutionary voices and forces across the world. And then we're going to finish with a discussion of organizing and what that can look like. So anyways, off the top here, we're going to talk about really quick the recent uh, agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran in Beijing. After four days of talks, uh, the two governments have decided that they will, in the next two months, work towards establishing diplomatic ties that includes embassies as well as bilateral agreements. Uh, For seven years, the two countries have actually not had any formal diplomatic relations at all, and this has been for a couple reasons, but of course, one being uh, Iran constantly being in the crosshairs in West Asia, as well as Saudi Arabia's ongoing uh, war against the Yemeni people. Um, one of the main, uh, shall I say, tenets of 
this agreement is non-interference in the sovereign issues of either nation. Now, for some of us who might look at the ongoing war in Yemen and think about how it would be awesome if China and Iran could go in and just end this occupation, end this genocide, and uh, really stick it to the UAE and Saudi Arabia and other nations like the United States who are funding this war. However, China's like main state practice is non-interference. So that'll never be the way that China as a nation pursues any kind of international relations. Um, however, it is significant for a few reasons. One, again, these are two countries that are in the same region, West Asia, and yet have had no diplomatic relations for seven years. That's a pretty big deal. It's also a big deal because it's yet another possible pause or end to a conflict that's a part of the larger ongoing global war and the global geopolitical relations that are quite exploitative, colonial, and oppressive. And so this is yet another attempt by China and other sympathetic forces within Iran and Saudi Arabia to, rather than lay down any expectations, to get down at the table and to talk. Now, this is not expecting, I'm not a, a, a goofball, shall we say. I don't expect that this necessarily means everything that's gone wrong in the region is now set to come to a close. But this does push the destiny of West Asia further towards a progressive uh, march towards liberation, which of course we should all be fighting for. So I mentioned Yemen, and of course we should also mention here the way in which Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the United States, uh, along with Israel, go on to uh, police, quote-unquote, and colonize the region for the United States and its European allies. And yet, here we have an agreement made between Saudi Arabia and Iran that did not include Israel when not too recently, or it might be coming up here soon, Saudi Arabia uh, was set to have a meeting with Israel to formulate uh, solidified ties, similarly to what Qatar and Jordan and um, Kuwait, there was one other region, I think it might have been Lebanon? Don't quote me there, but it was on People's Dispatch, the it's similar to like the U.S.'s Abraham Accords. It's regional integration ties. But anyways, excuse me. So that's one big news piece that people should be paying attention to. The other big news piece that I'm starting to get a little bit of a grasp of, I'm not a huge economist, so like I'm just a small, small economist, you know. I'm not like 70 feet tall or anything. Ha, get it? Anyways. So the Silicon Valley, which is known in the United States as like the tech hub of the world, right, in fact is seeing a huge bank run or crash, a lack of uh, 
funds available for the large investors, uh, speculators, venture capitalists, and startups, which have been depositing massive sums of money in a couple different banks, and I, I should have taken down the names of the, I believe there's three banks now, two that have collapsed, one that is on the verge of collapse, and many more that, you know, obviously will be affected by this. But um, one of the biggest, like, concerns here being that, yet again, it seems that the FDIC is going to bail out the banks. Now, according to FDIC law, it's only legally obligated to provide $250,000 per, um, well, uh, per person per account, right? However, the FDIC is breaking that law in order to ensure that the investors who are depositing millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars more than 250000 will in fact get the full sum total of their investment. I think it's going to be either high millions or low billions in total. Now we should remember that the bank bailout in 2008 was in the trillions, and we still are seeing the reverberations of that bailout today. What a bank bailout ultimately does is it's when the banks, the board of directors, the CEOs, the board of trustees who are in charge of our money, the money that we invest or the money that is stolen from us through our surplus value, through our labor, and the wages that are not paid to us, that money goes into the banks, right? And what does a bank do? Because a bank doesn't produce that money. The bank doesn't make that money. It holds that money. And in fact, what it does is it takes it and it loans it back out to us. So say, for example, you were to deposit $100,000, right? Now, banks are oftentimes, you know, liable to only insure about 20% per uh, account. Or excuse me, what I'm what I'm meaning to say is that banks are only often liable for about twenty percent of your original investment of a hundred thousand dollars. So say, you know, the bank that I go to was closing down, I got a hundred thousand dollars in there. If I get it if I'm getting my facts straight here, federal law says that legally speaking, the bank is only uh, required to have in cash 20% of each uh, account's full capital. So that means that in cash or in physical money, the bank would only have 20,000 of my 100,000. What they do with the extra 80,000 is they use that, they, you know, pile all that up from each account. And that is the money that they use to loan out to other people or to you when you ask for a loan. But this is your and my money. This is not their money. And they charge an interest fee, usury, which is like a practice which was illegal historically across the world. 
they charge interest on top of those loans in order to make their buck. And they hike the interest rate of the actual transaction fee, whatever you want to call it, of like the actual production of the dollar, so that your dollar, right, every time more money is printed, is worth less and less and less. And now, connecting this to the first news topic, because last year in the summer when Biden went to Saudi Arabia and tried to kiss the hand of the crown prince and was told, fuck off, we're not producing more oil, um, he also got a taste of what is to come, which is that Saudi Arabia also agreed to possibly consider, um, or I should say Saudi Arabia has begun discussions to consider selling its oil in the Chinese yuan or renembi rather than the u.s dollar which it agreed to do in 19 early 1970s under the uh nixon administration now this is a big deal of course because the u.s dollar formerly along with things like the sterling system were attached to that's the, the pound the british pound uh, i'm just learning about this stuff so i'm not just trying to throw terms out there without defining them or anything i promise you that uh so they were both along with many other currencies tied to gold but of course we know the gold standard was tossed out um a while back because of the attachment of u.s dollars to saudi arabian oil um so <coughs> excuse me because of this of course The United States has a lot to be worried about, not only because Saudi Arabia and China, Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the whole Asian continent, along with Russia, is continuing to further integrate, but because its own economic system, the United States imperialist economic system, is 100% dependent on the domination over and the dependency of those colonial nations on the imperialist nations. Meaning, like the gold standard, right? The only way that that gold was discovered or able to be accumulated in the banks and in the, you know, whatever, wherever it was accumulated in Europe and in North America was through the theft, colonialization, and occupation of the Third World by Europe and the United States. The same goes for oil. Why did Saudi Arabia feel forced to have to sell its oil not in its own currency? Because the United States had a military apparatus, had an economic apparatus, had a political international apparatus, which it was demonstrating around the world that it did not quite have um that did not quite have a diplomatic side to it shall we say and so saudi arabia like many other nations in the region and in the world was given the choice of either you know sign on to our the u.s uh you know script 
of how things are going to go or sign off from life in existence because the U.S. will overthrow, assassinate, destroy, and decimate uh, not just people and individuals and groups and nations, but entire regions of the world. And then, like it did in World War One, World War Two, and the rest of the world, it will try to sell back to the countries which it destroyed the infrastructure, resources, wealth, and technology, which it was as an imperialist nation, only able to acquire through the destruction of the imperialized nation. So yeah, a bunch of banks are crashing. Look out for that. That's interesting. Uh, check out Michael Hudson's piece on that. Geopolitical Economy Report. Uh, so I also want to mention that the other day it was 10 years since the death of Hugo Chavez, the former leader of the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela. Uh, Hugo Chavez, of course, many will remember for being a military official, for being a revolutionary, but others in Venezuela, thousands who marched in Caracas and across the country, remembered Hugo Chavez as being a you know, fatherly figure of sorts, a wholesome figure, a lover of the arts, a beautiful singer, uh, man with a big, beautiful smile, a uh, great belly laugh, someone who took responsibility in 1992 for the failed military overtake of the Venezuelan government uh, and said, this time, this time, comrades, we have not succeeded. And he, along with his compañeros, would go on uh, to overthrow through uh, military and civil uh, revolutionary process the uh, former government and instill, once again, uh, a revolutionary government in the region. Now, a lot of people don't know a lot about Hugo Chavez. One of my favorite things to point out about Hugo Chavez is he created a program in which uh, cheap oil from Venezuela was sold uh, in order to heat small homes in uh, rural areas across the United States. And there's an interview of a like a 60-year-old white woman who's talking about how much she loves Hugo Chavez and how she loves to watch him on TV. And she, you know, got to learn about him because it was a program that she was offered through the Venezuelan state that provides her heating in her house for free. I think that's kind of a big deal. But, so, Bolivarian Socialism, the... Venezuelan project that is led by the PSUV along with the people. It certainly gets a lot of flack from the Western leftists who have yet to do anything revolutionary themselves. Uh, however, of course, what we must see in the uh, revolutionary project being built in Venezuela is a deeply, deeply people-centered, popular, and participatory system where every neighborhood, every block, every city, every school, every union 
is integrated, is struggling together, is working towards a similar and shared goal for full liberation for all people of Venezuela. And that is going to take some time. That's going to be a generational struggle. And it certainly gets a lot harder every time the U.S. increases its siege warfare, a.k.a. sanctions. There's also more farmers who are marching in India. Um, folks should check out a recent interview on People's Dispatch on YouTube. Um, about 10,000 farmers marched and are marching to Mumbai. Um, their demands are, you know, pretty simple. Uh, to put in place some of the resolutions that have been passed in the you know, recent history about land reforms, about certain prices on goods, about the sale prices that farmers are getting for their products that continues to decrease while the prices of tools and equipment and of housing and food increases for their uh, consumption. So this is important because, of course, we remember a few years ago there was the march that uh, approximately 250 million uh, people took play, took part in um, that a lot of people were calling uh, the revolutionary upheaval to come in India. Um, there's a lot to learn about that. Folks should check out newsclick.in and should also, again, check out People's Dispatch um, for more on that. Uh, upcoming, there is a call, a very desperate call, that was announced at the March uh, 10th and 11th U.S.-Cuba Normalization Conference uh, to call the White House between the hours of 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. in order to insist that Cuba be removed from the state sponsor of terrorism list. Another similar call is being put out to... Uh, demand information on uh, the conditions of individuals like Leonard Peltier and Mumia Abu-Jamal as they both endure uh, late-stage life health problems, uh, as they both struggle to continue to see their cases reviewed and renewed recently, six boxes of information of evidence was, quote, discovered, unquote, on Mumia Abu-Jamal's case, proving that the jury was handpicked to remove black folks, that the main suspect likely was bribed to place Mumia at the uh, scene of the crime and to say that he had seen him murder uh, Officer Faulkner. And then similarly in the case of Leonard Peltier, uh, the CIA is refusing to allow any sort of progressive developments in the possible release of Peltier as he is coming to the end of his life, as he reaches, uh, you know, kind of higher and higher difficulties with his health issues. And of course, there are so many other political prisoners and prisoners in general who become politicized in the prisons or who might be in prison for reasons that can be understood as political when looking at the intentional impoverishment of oppressed and minority communities by the capitalist system as a political uh, imperative for their continued rule um, that 
go unnamed, unnoticed, uh, whose, you know, deaths pass without so much as a, a funeral or a, an announcement or an obituary. And, you know, as someone who has seen my own family and friends go through the prison system, it, you know, not that it necessarily takes personal experience, but for some people it does uh, to see the effects that this system has on the people that are inside, but also the world outside. Because we must understand the prison system as part and parcel of the occupying colonial force, um, especially as a tool for not only just, uh, you know, community control, but also another level to the psychological warfare that they wage on oppressed nations both within and outside of Turtle Island. Take a little bowl hit here. How's everybody doing? We feeling good? So I got one more announcement here, but I just want to say that, you know, my ability to discuss or cover these topics is not the greatest because I myself do not have the experience that so many others do. Listen to Prison Talk Radio. Mumia puts out a program. Others put out programs. Um, listen to the National Defense, National Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Check out, um, you know, groups like the National Network on Cuba and many others who do incredible work for and with political prisoners. But also look into figures like George Jackson. Jaleel Muntakim, um, and many others like uh, the former H. Rap Brown, who have gone on to organize in uh, prison and develop strong revolutionary organizations within the prison system. Um, the recent release of the first volume of the collected works of the Black Liberation Army could have only been possible due to the immense efforts of those who were incarcerated, such as the Black Liberation Army's Central Committee, which was never named, like, publicly, still, um, would go on to pass essays and letters and study guides and, uh, you know, press releases and all sorts of information between incarcerated folks, but also with the outside, with Black Panther Party, with the Young Lords, with all sorts of different revolutionary groups that were going in and out of the prisons in order to help out. That's the type of shit that folks should be looking at if you, if you haven't already, because it, it really is an important history to understand and part of the struggle that I don't think gets a lot of credit. Um, I think like the abolitionist circle is kind of cornered by like the anarchist types and so when you get into like more communism socialism stuff you don't really talk about it as much but i really do think that we make a mistake to disclude and ignore the incarcerated population the millions of people that are either currently or formerly incarcerated who are living in you know concentration camps on the border called immigration holding centers um all of these people need not be forgotten in our struggle. That much is desperately important to understand. And then, of course, it's four days away. It's this Friday. It's coming up. Or this uh, Saturday, it's coming up. Um, 
folks should be on the lookout for the March 18th rally and demonstration in D.C. Check out the Answer Coalition's website to see if there's a bus leaving from a, a area near you. I believe uh, there's a couple thousand people who are RSVP'd to come, and there's buses coming from all over the country, so folks should definitely uh, check that out if you haven't already. Again, the Answer Coalition, along with the People's Forum uh, and many other organizations, have endorsed uh, or helped to organize this event, um, so please check that out. And I think this is a good example to transition us into our discussion of uh, censorship and everything else I want to talk about, because I think this is a, another example of the attempt at developing a anti-war coalition, right? Um, the Answer Coalition is a organization that was formed pretty early on in the 2000s. I want to say that it was formed in... Trying to look it up right now. Uh, well, it doesn't have the form date right here on a Google search. However, it was formed early 2000s, and it was mainly formed against the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And so with the upcoming 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, uh, the Answer Coalition, which is... Oh, shit, I didn't fucking read it. Oh, here it is. Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, which is what ANSWER Coalition stands for, uh, will be, uh, along with over 150 different organizations, rallying and marching in D.C. Um, folks should attend that, but realize that these types of events are supposed to be a part of a larger organizational effort that can't be deduced down to one or a few events. But... Um, As we transition here into our next discussion, I want to make a point to say that there is a good and a bad way to try to form an anti-war coalition. And there is a good and a bad way to try to form coalitions in general. A good way is, of course, by connecting with the masses and by seeking out progressive and revolutionary people among the actual folks that you're trying to organize with, whether that be in trade unions, tenant unions, whether that be with your, you know, co, uh, I already said co-workers, but, um, you know, neighborhood committees or self-defense groups or uh, women's organizations or LGBTQ plus groups. Um, it is important that we build, a, you know, a grassroots base of revolutionary energy to keep whatever organizations or parties or you know, groups that vie for power, accountable, in check, and actually built by, for, and with the participation of the revolutionary people themselves. But of course, another good way to seek out these uh, forces is by connecting with the revolutionary and progressive organizations that already exist. Now, a not-so-great way to do this is by just connecting with any organization that seems to present itself as an anti-war or anti-nuclear, uh, right? Like a peace group, right? Because what is what is really peace in this situation of imperialism that we have around the world? I don't think it is enough to say that you're against war to be considered a valid member of a revolutionary or progressive coalition 
because if you look at uh, events like the Rage Against the War Machine, uh, which recently happened, you had a bunch of, you know, proto-fascists, former uh, right-wingers and uh, centrists, as well as some left liberals and some libertarians and a, a couple communists and socialists who, um, you know, felt and feel that the way to develop a strong anti-war coalition is by looking to the right. And although, you know, we need not ignore any political um, ideology and pretend it doesn't exist, that doesn't mean that we befriend any political ideology. And I think there's a lot of members who participated in the Rage Against the War Machine event who should have known better. Um, and there's a lot of organizations who were a part of and are part of this, you know, venture for a left-right alliance that uh, call themselves patriotic socialists or uh, liberals or uh, Democrats or um, centrists or whatever who are looking for an ability to establish a surplus uh, civilization which continues to live off of the fat and the death and the destruction of the global south in order to provide free health care or free education or uh, taking money away from the military industrial complex and putting it towards weed or, you know, uh, even something like uh, housing, right, in a colonial situation where you have indigenous and peoples and oppressed nations that have had their land stolen from them. You can't have one and the other. That's a contradiction. And so what a lot of colonial governments will try to do is it will try to present to its um, populace or even nationalist parties within a uh, colonial situation or left parties within a colonial situation, socialist parties within a colonial situation, who will appeal to the settler mass or to the working class, quote unquote, in order to continue the occupation of the lands which do not belong to them in the first place. And because the United States is so young, it requires the full force of the working class to fall in line with the American ideal of what, you know, even in this case, socialism might look like. But in fact, this is a false uh, picture because in order to try to build a true socialist or revolutionary situation, what we call the United States would have to be completely overturned and destroyed in order to actually build up a government or a society which is worth anything near the term revolutionary. It has been and it always will be a historical phenomenon for ruling class governments to try to present themselves or try to pretend as if they are willing to compromise with the revolutionary forces by cultivating their own false revolutionary socialist leftist forces and by also further implementing a misinformation campaign to confuse the general public about things like imperialism, capitalism, 
socialism, racism, LGBTQ plus struggles, etc., right? Because to be revolutionary is not to understand simply what is wrong with the capitalist imperialist system. It's not enough to look at a conflict happening in Ukraine and say you want an end to it. And it's certainly not enough to say that you want to take the funds that the United States or NATO is putting towards that and put it towards a settler colonial project within North America. It's a confusion of the new left, of the young left, of the white left, to expect that in the United States a socialist project could be built under the auspices of the United States. So what do I mean by this? When you talk about revolutionary, you talk about socialism, you talk about communism, you need to have not only a deep, deep principled understanding and awareness of the geopolitical structures, the complex contradictions and social relations, of economics, of politics, of social, you know, formation, of history, of science, of human interaction. But you also have to have a productive, progressive, participatory, and revolutionary program, project, and, you know, ideal and objective. What I mean by revolutionary means is it takes what exists and it completely transforms them into something new. Now, if we are to understand revolution correctly, we know that revolution is a generational plus process. So it's going to take more than just our generation. It's going to take more than just the next generation. It's going to take more than their kids and the generation after those. It's going to take a long time to not only destroy the reactionary and oppressive system, structures, nations, organizations, and class uh, that rules over the world, but it's also going to take a long time to then build a revolutionary uh, socialist project because, you know, first and foremost, the people have to participate. And for people to participate, they have to see themselves, they have to see something of importance to themselves in that project. They have to be given a role to participate in, and they have to be given a, a reason to want to participate. And I don't think a lot of people who are oppressed in the United States have a lot of interest in participating with libertarians, with conservatives, with former hawks and, you know, U.S. military officials, which are good for information, important to, you know, maybe read their articles or their speeches or their discussions with each other and maybe invite them when they turn to the left or leave the military to speak about their experiences, but to try to build relationships exclusively with, uh, you know, military folk who are prideful of their military uh, participation in the United States, uh, I, th I think that that should be where we draw the line, right? You know, veterans, former military officials who see the errors of and the awfulness of what the U.S. military is doing, 
certainly have a home among the revolutionary forces, but I think you have to really hold yourself accountable and people have to be able to hold you accountable to say that you, you have broken from those past practices. Of which I don't feel the majority of the, uh, you know, kind of right wing of the new populist forces has done. So work with the left, work with the revolutionary, communist, socialist, anarchist, you know, liber liberation struggles of the African, Asian, uh, Latin American, Mexican, and indigenous populations. Um, look at the struggles of immigrants around the world, of refugees, of displaced peoples. Look at the struggles of indigenous populations, not only here in North America, but across the Americas, across Africa, across Asia. And look at the struggles even of, you know, certain sectors of the working class of the white population in Europe and in North America, because there are certain sectors that have, you know, disposed with their settler colonial nature, have disposed with their European character, have committed class suicide rather than class collaboration and fought for and with the revolutionary liberatory forces, folks like John Brown, uh, folks like Frederick Engels, folks like, you know, even someone like Fidel Castro, who was raised by a somewhat wealthy landowning father and, you know, could have somewhat established himself as lawyer um, had he not had the revolutionary spirit and experiences that he did. You have someone like even like Lenin, who, you know, he wasn't necessarily like wealthy, uh, but even like Mao, right? Uh, they were able to be educated. They were able to get jobs. They were able to travel and, uh, you know, have different experiences. Um, folks like Ho Chi Minh, who, you know, could you imagine someone looking at Ho Chi Minh and saying, you're privileged because you went to school and lived in Bringing us back into the discussion, out of the ramble here, let's look at and talk about Black Power Media. Black Power Media is a great group of different content creators, different uh, podcasts and channels. Um, there's uh, folks like Dr. Jared Ball. Um, there's folks like uh, Jackie Lukeman and Sean Blackman over there putting in work. Um, I'm trying to look at the program list here because uh, there's a few different shows. So you got the Rational Radical Show. You got Earn Your Liberation, Guerrilla Intellectual University, Remix Morning Show. You got In Search of Black Power, RSTV, Sunday's Radio, I Mix What I Like, Warrior Class, Luke My Nation. Real Talk with Sundiata Kita Chajua, the Black Miss Podcast, The Uncle Devin Show, Doctor's Office, and Renegade Culture. So, Black Power Media was uh, given a formal warning by YouTube that apparently one of their pieces of media contained something akin to uh, election misinformation. 
Now that was about the, what I just gave you is about the total depth of information that Black Power Media has received from YouTube. Anyone who's gotten banned on social media knows that, uh, especially if you're on the left, usually you're not given a legitimate reason. Um, sometimes it's because groups find your account and report you. Sometimes it's because uh, the IDF and CIA is not quite fond of the attention that your media is getting and the things that you are talking about. And sometimes it's just because, you know, these uh, social media and other media platforms are old, owned and controlled by massive capitalist corporations in the imperialist capitalist central core nations. And so therefore, they're not going to be quite keen about folks like Dr. Jared Ball talking about revolution talking about the, you know, culture, uh, the traditions in hip-hop and in music that talk about liberation, talking with uh, folks like Jackie Lukman and Sean Blackman and others who come on and, you know, bring in the historical depth, the geopolitical analysis and the anti-imperialist framework, the revolutionary African uh, traditions that uh, are important to bring out of the uh, kind of counterculture uh, depths of, uh, you know, circles and groups that they're, you know, ultimately segregated in. Because that's what happens. You have the white left and there's so many fucking podcasts and YouTube channels that get circulated that are so fucking meaningless and useless and just repeating the same fucking shit. I'm one of them. Um, and then there's folks like Dr. Jared Ball who get no love and then get banned on YouTube. And as he pointed out in his interview with, um, uh, um, oh, fuck, Eugene Perrier and uh, Rania Kalik, I can't think of the name of the program. It's on uh, Breakthrough News, but they just did an interview where, you know, Comrade Jared pointed out that... Uh, Basically, he has been perusing YouTube to see who has supported Black Power Media and who's not said anything, and he finds it very interesting. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, uh, stake my claim as someone who actually does legitimately support Black Power Media, listens to and enjoys the program, but also understands the importance of the Black radical tradition, the importance of you know, African liberation, the importance of understanding neo-colonialism against the formerly enslaved, um, not only just African, but also indigenous, uh, Chicano, Latino, and other populations uh, across the world. And Black Power Media is also connected with a group known as Black Alliance for Peace that, uh, you know, I'm in the solidarity network for and have heard a lot about not only this censorship of dr jared ball and black power media and the other folks affiliated with the program but also just the continued war against the calls for liberation of oppressed peoples within north america and across the world because how much attention does this ukraine bullshit still get I'll wait for you to think about how much it like legitimately gets coverage of when South Korea's new elected government is like actively trying to engage North Korea in warfare. 
when Japan is rearming itself to the level it was pre-World War II for the first time ever, when countries like Israel are seeing large splits in their former, quote, liberal government, where the right wing is actively calling for the extermination of Palestinians, which isn't new, but of course, the veneer that they've been trying to paint over themselves for the appeal to Westerners and the like uh, is being removed due to a necessity uh, for their struggle for survival because the Palestinian struggle will succeed and the fake, uh, ridiculous, genocidal state known as Israel will fall, as will Zionism, all power to the Palestinians. But this struggle against folks like By Any Means Necessary, RT, and like mad Africans across the continent, uh, a lot of anti-imperialists across the world uh, in the third world, in the global south, have had this issue time and time again. Now, again, this is because, as we mentioned, this media is not our own. I want to shout out an interview that was done a while ago with the Midwestern Marx folks, where the uh, comrade Carlos pointed out that you know, excuse me, a lot of these content uh, creation, <coughs> social media platforms like Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, they're all owned by capitalists and corporations that have no interest in revolution, have n no uh, shared interests with the general working public. And, you know, create these platforms to further alienate and uh, advertise uh, to the people. So when you have a system like this, you know, and a, uh, a media structure like this that is dominated and dictated, for example, in the United States, uh, the media, the news media is owned and operated by the same eight corporations. <clears throat> It's almost impossible for folks like myself or Black Power Media or by any means necessary to get the support and attention that they need when, you know, their content is shut down or censored or blocked or whatever you want to call it. Um, because, you know, not only does the general mainstream population not know anything about it, but therein the white left population and the supposedly revolutionary forces go on not giving a fuck about stuff like this. They just want to talk about Ukraine. So, you know, if we want to talk about Ukraine really quick, let's talk about the fact that 87% of the global population has voted not to support the sanctions on Russia. How about the majority of the global South nations, including Africa, Asia, and Latin America, have refused in the majority to send any arms, ammunition, or support to Ukrainian neo-fascists. And let's also talk about the fact that the Zelensky government has banned all political parties, banned all independent media that is not controlled by the Ukrainian government, has established himself on the backs of the neo-fascist militias and uh, populist right-wing organizations which have committed acts of terror against all different population groups, including but not limited to 
Jewish, Roma, Russian, and other uh, ethnic, social, religious, and national groups. And yet, there are portions of what the revolutionary African forces have historically called the black misleadership class who would want the black folks to believe that as they want all of us to believe that the fascists in Ukraine are leading a liberatory struggle against the authoritarian Russian Federation. Like that comment or not, I don't really give a shit. My point is that what are the black leaders doing for black people in the United States other than standing up and collecting their checks and making black people look bad and creating all kinds of media and cultural nationalism which is co-opted by the white supremacist and imperialist societies. That is what the leaders of the uh, quote black misleadership class have historically done for Africans around the world, both here in North America and on the continent of Africa. So why doesn't the white left, the supposed revolutionaries and socialists, fight for oppressed people? Well, there's a few reasons. First and foremost, it is because their interests can be almost logically, to them, delineated and separated from the interests of the oppressed nations and people of those nations. Uh, the second reason is because, historically speaking, it has been the white European populations which have gone on to colonize the non-white, non-European nations. And so it is the white populations which have this history of supremacy and this ability to collaborate with this supremacy for money or power or uh, status or whatever and commit acts of terror uh, on behalf of a ruling class which in and of itself does not seek out the same interests of even the white working class or even the white middle class for that matter. So we want a broad coalition, right? And that's what's always talked about. But how can we have a broad coalition when we as white, you know, communist, socialists, etc., have historically at the last moment, at midnight, given up on indigenous peoples' struggles, on struggles of African peoples, on the struggles of colonized and formerly colonized people all around the world. How can Africans trust us? How can Latin Americans trust us? How can people around the world trust anything that we have to say when historically speaking, they have all these examples to show that we might not be true to our word? Well, we can be true to our word. We can really struggle for a true broad coalition of revolutionary forces among the oppressed peoples and oppressed nations around the world. 
So, you know, first and foremost, we have to understand that oppressed people themselves have the strongest radical and revolutionary traditions that can be uh, learned from, that can be fought alongside, and that will succeed in overthrowing their oppressors have before. Unlike the, quote, revolution in America here, the revolution in places like, for example, Venezuela, has actually placed power in Venezuelan people's hands, in the oppressed people's hands, in women, in black folks, in uh, poor peoples, in uh, disabled peoples, in LGBTQ plus people's hands. Now, is it perfect? No. Nothing will ever be perfect. And if your main goal in life is to be perfect or to see things through to perfection, you will have a very hard time, my friend. That's not an excuse, that's just a reality. There's also a history which feeds into and builds the revolutionary struggles that are happening today. And it would be imperative to us to understand that those are the forces that we must align ourselves with and struggle alongside, because those are the forces which have always been leading the struggle. That is African women that is indigenous peoples, that is oppressed nations, that is extremely impoverished, unemployed, unhoused, you know, the population of people which is set aside and segregated from society and by society, which ultimately in a colonial situation has the potential alongside of the revolutionary forces within the working class to overthrow the oppressed, or the, excuse me, the oppressing uh, state and establish a popular participatory state which is revolutionary in character. So how do we do this? Well, when we're talking about anti-imperialism and we're talking about anti-war, we're also talking about anti-colonialism and we're specifically talking about anti-ruling class wars. So we're not wanting to fight the wars of the ruling class. We're wanting to fight a class war against the ruling class. That is what anti-imperialism is. That is what anti-colonialism is. It's struggle by all means necessary against the oppressive forces. How do we get there? Well, we need help. To get help, we have to look to one another. I have to learn. So I put these episodes out and I put this message out to say, help me, connect with me, connect with those around you, talk to your neighbors, talk to your co-workers. Not only should you study the documents and essays and historical artifacts and, uh, you know, revolutionary histories and theories of those who came before us, but you should actively try to form those histories, those theories, and those practices by participating in the formation of different types of organization. Now the best way to do that is of course find the uniting front, find the thing that is most difficult or most imperative that needs to be struggled against most primarily in order for the remainder of the struggles in the area to get the boost and the bolster from that initial struggle that is necessary. So if you have, for example, a housing crisis in your area, as the majority of us do, 
a good unifying struggle is the struggle for housing, the struggle for quality life in housing. Now, in that struggle, it has to be understood that we are on indigenous land. It also has to be understood that we are in a colonial and imperial nation. And it also has to be understood that for a revolutionary situation for housing to take place, a revolutionary movement has to take power. So the housing struggle within a capitalist imperialist system has to take on the different fronts and the different efforts which will necessarily lead us to and lead that movement towards a revolutionary situation. And that's not always easy to tell in the moment. But the best way to do that is constantly be building up a grassroots formation which has to be accountable to the people which it is constantly bringing in and which are not going to be satisfied with simple or formulaic and traditional practices which they can look at and say have failed before. We also have to keep coming up with creative ideas and looking at the creative ideas which are happening around the world. Art music, culture, literature, um, even things like, you know, believe it or not, video games, or, you know, uh, drag shows can be a part of a revolutionary culture if you have the means, methods, and organizational apparatus in place to make them so. But also understanding that a revolutionary and a, you know, someone looking for socialism should be trying to meet people everywhere. And I don't mean, you know, <laughs> go check out the KKK, see what, see what they're all about. I mean, definitely check out and know what the KKK is all about so you can have a historical understanding of the fact that it's tied with the CIA white supremacy, the United States government, and has been aided, armed, and funded for a long time by some of the largest corporations and corporate funders and banks across the world. Police stations across uh, the United States have uh, always had active members or undercover members, quote-unquote, uh, within the KKK and other fascist groups. So a little side note there, but I don't know why I got on that tangent. My point being that, uh, you know, all these different avenues, like I said, music, art, culture, politics, social relations, religion, video games, uh, struggle is everywhere and needs to be brought out everywhere. And so for us as revolutionaries, one of the best things to do is to get with the people and to be creative and to come up with different ideas that can uh, foster a new participation or a new role for people who might look at the existing parties and say, uh, that's not really appealing. We have to look to different groups that have come before us and that exist today, and we have to really struggle to form our own, too. Um, folks can, you know, definitely be talking with their co-workers about things that are important to them, trying to find out which struggles in the area offer the most, you know, opportune uh, possibilities trying to figure out which ways uh, you can connect with organizations that, you know, might exist in your region or might exist internationally, and to study together, you know, the different efforts that have come before us, to study seriously the way that tenant unions or work unions uh, or, you know, different uh, parties and organizations 
have tried to change the material conditions. Um, we don't always have to follow those rules, though, too. We have to uh, look at the conditions we exist in today versus the ones that existed prior and say what has changed and what do we need to change to meet that. Um, and the only advice that I can really give from my you know, experience is be open to learn, be honest, um, and really try desperately to be as compassionate and empathetic for everyone that you come across because you never know who and, you know, who will become a, a, a real uh, leader or who will be able to, you know, teach you or who will be able to uh, connect the dots in a way that maybe those uh, who have tried before haven't. You never know what's around the corner and you never know uh, what event or experience is going to bring someone in that you might have written off completely. Um, but just remember where to draw the line and remember how to bring out the revolutionary spirit in people. And that's through creative participation. That's through love. That's through compassion. That's through empathy. That's through newer and newer uh, ideas. You know, have a block party, have a potluck, have a game night, have a revolutionary history trivia, have a, a reading group on uh, Karl Marx's death day, which is today, um, 140 years ago. Uh, you know, come up with a grocery group, go get groceries with your friends, start an LGBTQ plus organization, uh, start doing drag shows, start standing outside of legislators' houses and demanding change. Start uh, going to your capital and, you know, connecting with people and figuring out how the fucking complicated politics happen so that when these different elections and different uh, bills pass and different political events occur, people aren't just as confused as I am. Um, all that work is important, but there's so much more work to be done. So... Remember, folks, that uh, only way we're going to get over this is through. Um, the only way that we're going to be able to succeed is through uh, revolutionary national liberation struggle and through socialism. Not because I say so, but because history has proven so. And look at the ongoing struggles against the Atlanta Police Department's unveiling of what has been called Cop City and the murder of figures like Tortuguita, um, and the arrest of countless uh, unarmed protesters, peaceful protesters who are being declared domestic terrorists. Look into the uh, recent National Day of Action called for Community Movement Builders. Uh, look at the Southern Workers Union that is struggling uh, with a lot of different uh, issues. Look at the tenant unions in your area. Connect with the different political parties or start your own. All power to the people, folks.